Live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. Thank you. It's been a long winter break. There's been various complaints about the radio silence over the winter break. People clearly think that historians don't need a holiday. No, it was just a period for Chazara. Of course, yes. I see that you were in a hotel in the winter break. I saw advertised. Yes, Wolverhampton. No doubt gave a few history classes there. I did, yes. And also picked up on some of the local history, more of a uh, general secular nature than uh, Jewish or religious, but interesting nonetheless. We'll wait for the podcast on that one. So welcome back. This is now the first of a four-part series on the Jews of Provence. Yes. Did I pronounce it correctly? More or less. (laughs) Others would think it's be pronounced Provence if they had seen that on a map. But us history buffs, we know it's Provence. And this is a four-part series, if I'm correct. Yes, correct. So we'll really be covering general history today, understanding the lives of the people there to some degree. And I think it's fair to say that most people could place cities and regions in the context of Jewish history. Meaning if we said, you know, Prague or the Rhineland or Krakow, That cannot be said about Provence. It's recognizable from a map, but individuals or events from there are pretty much unknown. Now, it's actually a beautiful area, you know, lilac fields, sunflowers, ancient Roman bridges, nicer amphitheaters, more preserved than the ones in Rome. It's been termed as being eloquent with sunlight. (laughs) And you had Cezanne and Picasso. They both lived and painted in Provence. In fact, Picasso's buried there. And most famously, Van Gogh was there. That's where he cut off his left ear. (laughs) So it's all in all really worth a trip to. You have also Marc Chagall of the stained glass windows. Well, Moishi Chagall, really, from Vitebsk. The Chagalls were actually arrested there by the French police in 1941. They were in Marseille, but the French police were pressured into releasing him and he left, but he came back to Provence afterwards. So it's a very pretty region and quite well known on the international travel scene. What specific area is called Provence? I mean, obviously I know, but uh, for the for the listeners at large. Okay, so we'll do this without a map. So technically, Provincia is wider than France's Provence. It's actually most of the south coast of France along the Mediterranean Sea. Half is actually Languedoc and half is Provence. And let's put it this way. Imagine you're looking at the very south of France. So on the left-hand side, you'd have Spain, and on the right-hand side, you'd have Italy. Now, if you start to draw a, a half circle, starting at the border of France and Spain, so at Perpignan, and then you go past Narbonne, Montpellier, Nîmes, Arles, taking in Avignon and Aix-en-Provence, 
and then back down to the coast as far as Marseille and Toulon, stopping before the Côte d'Azur and uh, Monaco and Nice, and etc. That's almost a full 180-degree arc along the sea. That's the geographical area that we are talking about. And it was particularly active during the period of the Roshanim, especially from 1000 to 1300, the early Roshanim, during the times of the Balitosvis in Germany and of the Rambam and the Ramban in Spain. But the Druze of Provence are neither. They are not Ashkenaz, they are not Svarad. Geographically, linguistically, in their customs, in Halacha, the Chachme Provincia are separate. And I'd say the most obvious way to see that is their strong independence in their writings. A typical example would be the Balhamor, who will author a critique of the Rif, Rabbi Yitzchak al-Fasi, who was the greatest halachic authority of the 11th century and the first codifier of halacha. But it doesn't stop the Balamoyer from writing because no one is above criticism. If something has to be said, the scholars of Provence will say it. And he, in turn, the Balamoyer, will be the subject of a critique, in fact, too. And it's therefore not surprising that they are at the epicenter of all the three controversies about the Rambam. In fact, they more or less create them. Why have we not heard more about them? They sound very prominent. You have, but you don't realize necessarily that they are from Provence. The Reduc, the Ralbug, the Meiri, the Rivard. We'll get to them in future podcasts in this series. Now, the connection to Jewish history starts very early on for Europe pre-Hurban, before the destruction of the Second Temple, Archelaus is the king of Judea in Eretz Israel. He is the son and the successor of Herod the Great, whom the Roman emperor Augustus will eventually exile to Vienne in the year 6 CE at the request of the Jews in Eretz Israel because Archelaus followed in his father's and in Herod's footsteps with regard to his cruelty to the Jews. In fact, he was unfortunately even worse. And so the, the Jews managed to get rid of him, and he comes to this region. The Jews themselves were definitely there in the 2nd and 3rd century already. And in the year 449, the Kehillah took part in the funeral of one of the bishops there. They were singing Tehillim in Hebrew. This is in Arles. And they contribute to the defense of the city when it was under siege. So they are definitely known about at that stage. Narbonne has the oldest inscription of French Jews. There's a white marble tombstone which is carved in Latin, which is the official language at the time. And there's a seven-branch menorah. And the translation of what it says there is that, uh, you know, here rest in peace the three children of Lord Perator. Peace be upon Israel. And that they died in the second year of the reign of King Edrika, who was a king who was around in the late 7th century, 
which was a time of persecution and massacres of Jews by the Visigoth kings, who had just recently uh, rejected paganism and become Catholic. And they therefore explain why these three children would have all died in the same year. They didn't die naturally. So you have the beginnings of a presence which would be opposed to the Jewish way of life. In Avignon, Roman soldiers planted vineyards and the Jews called the city Ir Hagfanim, the city of the vines. And they were there in one area, in fact, just on five streets from the 5th through to the 13th century. And they owned land, which was unusual. In the 8th century, Charlemagne conquers Provence for the French, but shortly after that, it becomes independent. It's no longer part of the Kingdom of France. So the Jews there have a different history, a different destiny to the rest of France. It's governed by local counts, and they actually have a better life until the 1500s. In the 9th century, Marseille is captured by... Arab pirates and then Byzantine pirates, because, of course, these are the dangers of living on the seafront, invasions. But the advantages are economic. Trade booms in good times, and the Jews imported silk, weapons, carpets from the East, and a lot of the commerce was controlled by Jews. Um, they were active in the salt mines, wine, textiles. And there were 300 families in Narbonne itself governed internally. For instance, in Montpellier, you have the Faculty of Medicine, which was the oldest in France. And the academic freedom there was extraordinary uh, because the courses were taught, some by Arabs, some by Jews, some by Christians. In fact, there are two plaques on display that show the names of all the principal figures there, including the name of Rav Nossen ben Zachariah, who wrote Sefer Rufus. And in Marseille, by 1217, the Jews have been granted equal status with the Christians. And of course, all of these, if you compare it to France or Germany, where the Crusades were taking place with blood libels, it's almost astonishing. Now, that doesn't mean that they escape the hatred of the Christians at times. There was one incident in Toulon in 1348, where a group of fanatics, including the clergy, attacks the Jewish quarter and kills them and looted the houses. And basically that brought an end to this Kehilla. But in the main, they have a positive experience far in excess of anywhere else under Christian rule. Now, this area, as we said, has two halves. The left-hand side towards Spain is technically called Languedoc. That contains the cities of Montpellier, Nîmes, Lunel, and Narbonne. But unfortunately, in the summer of 1306, everything suddenly changes because it becomes part of France. And the French king brings a sudden and brutal end to the golden age that they have there with mass expulsions. They were, until then, wealthy, sheltered, 
And this includes a number of the Rishonim, who were great scholars, but they were people of means. They are now all expelled and would not come back for 500 years, which is why, you know, as you mentioned earlier, we don't necessarily know of these places. So they move from the sort of left-hand area to the right-hand area, which is actually Provence. That's uh, Marseille, Avignon. But their situation gradually goes downhill. There are less professions open to them. Interestingly, Cecil Roth has shown that the Jews pioneered printing six years before Gutenberg in the Avignon community in 1444. A Jew commissions a wandering German craftsman to cut a Hebrew font. But unfortunately, then comes the year 1481, which is the fatal turning point in the history of Provençal Jews, because it too is swallowed up by the Kingdom of France, and in May 1500, the king gave the Jews three months to leave Provence forever, because no Jews are allowed to live anywhere in France. They've been there for 10 centuries. They've been able to bring in uh, unfortunate Jews from Languedoc, even from Spain in 1492, and they are now reduced to looking for asylum, um, which should have been the end of Provençal Jews. Should have been? Well, there was one small area, uh, probably in size, maybe, I don't know, 35 miles by 40 miles. So bigger than London. Yeah. Maybe, I don't know, one and a half times the size of Greater London. And it, this small area in the middle of everything, escapes the exile for the most uh, absurd and ironic of reasons. Because in the midst of this larger region of Provence, this tiny area called uh, Conta Venissin didn't belong to the King of France, but to the Pope. And, you know, sort of irony beyond all irony, the Pope allows the Jews to stay when the French did not. So Provençal Gedeulim came to an end. In other words, there'd be no more international scholars produced in this region. They continue to be observant, but they are far too small, far too restricted. It's like Rome after 1554. And they would continuously live there until after the French Revolution. Why did this belong to the Pope? So at the beginning of the 13th century, the Count of Toulouse owned this whole area. He was very opposed to the Catholics, so the church excommunicated him. They fought a war, he lost the war, and the Pope decided that the Comtat should come under papal protection and was given, so to speak, forever to the Popes. Now, at first, after 1500, the Jews live in various villages and towns in this small region, but after 1624, they only are allowed to live in four towns, Avignon, Carpentras, which was the capital, Cavaillon, and Lille-sur-la-Sorgue. And together, they make up the four holy communities, the Arba Kehillot, as they call themselves, which was in parallel to the four communities in Eretz Yisrael of Yerushalayim, Hebron, Tzvas, and Tveria. Wow. Can you describe a bit what life was like in these communities? So it's interesting, there are almost continuous records in the archives, and these four towns are the 
only place in all of France that have buildings dating back to the period of the Rishonim. There's a, a mikveh from the 1300s, a cemetery, and they have very small numbers, but it's unique. So from 1500, they are all in, in a ghetto, a carrière, as they called it, but actually it was just one street. Now, the Jews call it a, they use the Hebrew term, mesilla, for the street, except that they were in the habit of pronouncing their S as an F, so they called it a mefila. It was this one street with dead ends closed by gates at either side. All the other exits were blocked off. And there was a door with uh, iron bars and locks, like a prison door. The passage through this street was open during the day, but closed from seven in the evening until morning, guarded on the outside by Christian gatekeepers who were paid for, of course, by the Jewish community. And these guards had instructions to only open at night in the case of emergency fire, birth, something like that. And all Christian windows opening onto this ghetto were blocked off, as were any Jewish windows opening onto the outside. The Jews were forbidden to spend the night outside the carrière unless they had received written permission. And let's say in, in Carpentras, which is the, the largest ghetto of the four, the, the ghetto, the street, was 88 meters long. Now, what you have to realize is that the, the Carrière in the 16th century had around 120 families, but there were 400 families in exactly the same space in 1782. And it was forbidden to in any way enlarge it, which resulted in a uh, housing crisis. And the only thing they could do to resolve it was build upwards. These were the first skyscrapers, but they were fragile and they were dangerous the apartments were tiny um, and the poorer you were the higher up you lived you know those people who lived in the attics were the at the very bottom of the economic pile and rather than carry their provisions up so many flights of stairs they brought them up with ropes and pulleys and hygiene basic comfort were in very short supply. It was impossible to keep the carrière clean. They appealed for the right to have a, a fountain, which was denied to them. So for 300 years, they had to bring water from the outside. The drainage system was terrible. And this street, even under the brilliant sun of the south of France, was basically in darkness. So they were literally restricted to this one street. Yes, I mean, the only institution outside the walls of the Carrière was the cemetery. Wow. Does it still exist, this street? Not as such, because they redeveloped it almost immediately. But there are certain houses and buildings there that date back, yes. Wow. And then there were general restrictions. Jews over the age of 13 had to wear a yellow wheel sewn over their garments at least 10 centimeters in size and in the 16th century pope clement VI changed it to the wearing of a yellow hat for men and a yellow badge for women because that's more easily identifiable 
The Nazis didn't invent it. By no means. No, it already dates back to 1215. Non-Jews could not appear at any sort of Jewish ceremony or celebration. Non-Jews were not allowed to offer Jews transport. They weren't allowed to work as domestics in Jewish homes. They couldn't assist Jewish women in giving birth. They couldn't buy food from a kosher butcher. They were, however, very fond of the matzahs that were made there, which were called <laughs> kudol in Provençal. And during Pesach, they would sort of slip into the carrière to get a supply. <laughs> and there grew a very structured and organized Kehillah life. The shul was at the heart of both religious and civil life, the building itself. It was the nerve center, offices, meeting rooms, children's classrooms, the mikveh, the matzah bakery, the hospital. Uh, but the Jews were not allowed any renovation of the shul. And since the height of the building was restricted, the only way to get additional space was by digging. And therefore, the women's section, the Ezrashnoshim, where they were confined until 1741, was in the basement and could only sort of communicate with the men through a small window. And in fact, on the night of Yom Kippur, towards the end of Yom Kippur, two women would sit opposite each other, one holding a white thread and the other one a black. And when the two colors couldn't be distinguished in the fading light, they would know that the fast was over. In general terms, education was obligatory to the age of 15 and was free for the poor. And everyone had an obligation to take their turn in caring for the sick or pay for a substitute to do so. The community provided a dowry for girls with no money to get married. Everything was regulated. They couldn't have survived otherwise by the sound of it, no? Yep. They had to and they did. And therefore, for instance, the individual could always count on the support of the collective. Uh, they knew that if they fell on hard times, their family wouldn't be abandoned. They would be poor, but they would not be on their own. And interestingly, no head of family could fail to turn up on Shabbos morning without good reason. <laughs> and it would be immediately noticed if you didn't. The uh, Sidurim, there were in manuscript form initially, and then they managed to do a print run in Amsterdam in 1739 and in Avignon in 1760. And the Nusach is not the same. It's not Svarad, it's not Ashkenaz, it's not Italian. It's their own Nusach. They were different. Wow. It sounds like the main issue they faced was poverty. Yes. In fact, money was the overwhelming issue for all, not just for those who had none. Taxes which meant that the entire community had to take on the burden. By example, or by particular way of illustration, 1678 was always remembered as a disastrous year. And the community, particularly in Carpentras, was in, in a state of terror because the non-Jewish creditors threatened the Jews with eviction or, you know, they hinted at destruction. And the Jews had to take extreme measures to make up the deficit. And therefore, in the presence of the non-Jewish leadership, the bishop, lawyer, the Jewish taxpayers gathered uh, into the shawl in front of the Pesach oven, which is still there, by the way, and voted to immediately raise everyone's tax burden by 25%. 
it basically had no choice, even if it would push even more people to uh, poverty. The alternative was to be thrown out. So the, the carrière was sealed off. Soldiers bolted the doors and uh, remained there for the entire day, even though it was a Friday. And the wardens made their way collecting money from house to house, from apartment to apartment. And we have an actual account that tells us that at one point the wardens came to the rabbi because somebody was uh, holding out, was refusing to give this extra 25%, and they were going to excommunicate them. And so they, you know, they come to this building with the members of the treasury, the, you know, the Kehillah treasury. They carry a Sefer Torah and uh, black candles and um, wax for fixing seals to seal off the house of the excommunicated. And they shout up, Widow Lyonnais, for the last time, will you take this 25% supplement and pay it now? or eternal excommunication, uh, like a, a leper from the Kehillah, cursed for always. And you know that people in Cherem die within 12 months. <laughs> and she responds and she says, you know, my husband is dead and my son went off to uh, Eretz HaKodesh last year and I've got no money. So they said, fine, we'll come up with the seals. How much do you think your apartment is worth? And he blows the shofar, and they're about to start up, and the woman finally gives in, and she, from the sixth floor, she sends down her contribution with her purse attached to it, and they had to do this. Different and, world. Yep. In fact, the four Kehillahs were closed groups, uh, exclusively of the Jews born there. You, a stranger could not join, and no member could leave without paying their dues and then renouncing their rights, except for those who made aliyah. Any other Jew leaving was a, a traitor, which in fact brings us to what I would call one of the saddest, uh, most unfortunate elements of these living conditions, which we would never have dreamt of. And that was that visitors or strangers were forbidden to remain in the ghetto for more than a week without special authorization and it was forbidden under pain of being fined to rent these people an, an apartment if you did so the ultimate fine was to be expelled from the kehillah even though obviously these unfortunates who were coming looking for hospitality were arriving often in the wake of a pogrom and expulsion it's tragic what Jews are forbidden to extend hospitality and charity. So, yeah, and it's terrible, and, but it has a very real explanation. Uh, you have to remember the, the housing shortage. It was a crisis that threatened literally their health. It was in every career in, in endemic to the point where the residents were deprived of space, of, of air, of light, and the ghetto simply couldn't allow new people to to enter which i think tells us more about the wretched conditions they live in than, than any single story what about the the girls and boys who seek to get married how was their their partner welcomed or unwelcomed you mean if they brought people from the outside yeah the truth is that even then they were treated the, the newcomer with a level of i guess wariness is the best word they wouldn't be allowed to take any Kehillah position for 10 years. And if 
they they married you know a man comes and marries a woman from the the area and the wife dies childless they would revert to the status of being a foreigner and have to leave wow they they couldn't do otherwise the interesting thing was that uh, in order to understand that these people were not really inhospitable there were visitors really one or maybe two that would come annually to a royal welcome from Jerusalem there were rabbis who crossed all of Europe to get support for the poor Jews of Eretz Israel. Famously, the Chidot did so, and in 1754, he visits Provence. He goes to Avignon, to Cavaillon, to Nice, various places, and he was welcomed with the small amounts that the Kehillah could afford, although it has to be said, by the time the Chidot came, by the mid-1700s, things were looking up in financial terms for the Jews. They're still completely confined to the ghetto, as they have been by then for over 250 years, but they managed some, some had managed to make real money, very similar to another European ghetto at exactly the same time in Frankfurt, the Rothschilds. And the four communities they are observant, they carry on learning, studying, and in fact at one point the church raids on the ghetto found hundreds of contraband svarim. It's just hard to believe that Jews who became wealthy wouldn't leave. It shows how strong they were in keeping their killer members there, what it meant to leave. Yeah, they knew that if they left, what it would do to everybody else. Yeah, a very strong sense of, of Kehillah. And also they would be related to many of these people. You're living in the same area for hundreds of years, very small numbers. Yeah, that, that would be your own family. So they couldn't create uh, scholars of their own, but they recruited rabbis and teachers from outside. There was a rabbi in Carpentras from Sofia for nearly 20 years. Livorno provided a rabbi. Prague, Rabbi Yaakov Ispir, he came to Avignon in 1741. In Cavaillon, they had a Polish rabbi. And in terms of total numbers, there were probably about 2,000 Jews in the whole area. 400 in Avignon out of 4,000, 350 in Lille-sur-la-Sorgue, 200 in Cavaillon, and the rest in Carpentras, where they were approximately 15% of the population at its maximum. Oh, I'm just curious, what language did they speak? Was it French? Or? So, the authorities spoke French, Latin, Provençal, but the people, both the Christians and the Jews, spoke the language of Provençal. Is that similar to French? It's similar. But the Jews had Judeo-Provençal as their everyday language inside the, the carrière. Um, I came across a couple of phrases. One is... Daber davar devant le nard, which translates as don't speak in front of the boy. <laughs> yeah. And then it sounds they, like all the French he's currently living in Israel. <laughs> <laughs> and then you have the word manver, which I will leave to your own imagination as to what that meant when applied to an individual. So they are living there all the way through until the French Revolution in 1789 at which stage the Comte as a whole, this, this small region, comes under pressure to become part of the French country, I guess, which happened in 1790. But it was not until 1791 that the gates of the four ghettos that had belonged for 
almost 520 years to the popes in Rome were finally opened. And as soon as they were legally allowed, they got out of there. After hundreds of years in the ghetto, they couldn't leave fast enough. They, the, the living conditions were atrocious. So there's nothing left there. So, uh, well, okay, let's take each one of the four in turn. There are no Jews in Cavaillon, but there's a very beautiful tiny shawl and a small area there. L'île sur la Sorgue was called in its time the Venice of Provence because there are canals passing through the, the Renaissance area. And textiles, especially the silk industry, was at the heart of the town's commerce. And in fact, by the mid-1700s, has a strong Jewish influence. But all of that has gone, including the, the shawl, etc. There's an open space called the uh, Place de la Juiverie, which covers the sort of the general area in which these 350 Jews lived at the time of the revolution, but nothing else. Carpentras has a sporadic minion. Last time I was there was just after Pesach a few years ago, and they had just had a Seder, and they still have a community structure, and there's much to see. Avignon still has a minion, even definitely every week, but even for Shachris during the week. I've been there with a group, been there on my own a couple of times. In fact, I had a, a baguette breakfast with the members upstairs after davening. Good baguettes. Uh, yes, yeah, <laughs> definitely. When they're fresh, they're definitely very good. And so there is some sort of echo of that which was, and it's a, a beautiful area. But I think the, the, the story of this tenacious, uh, courageous small group of Jews should be known. Because in spite of the humiliation of ghetto life, they remain dynamic. And it's the only place in France with... 1,500 years of a continued Kehilla presence. Incredible. Now, so far we've dealt with the broad history, but in order to do them real justice, we need to become acquainted with their writings, their controversies, their mysteries, their link in the chain of Kabbalah, for instance, which we will hopefully do over the next few weeks. Thank you very much, Robert Hirsch. And as usual, any feedback questions comments could be emailed to podcast at jle.org.uk in the last few weeks most of the emails were when are you restarting but rabbi hirsch is also open to suggestions for future topics thank you very much we'll see you next week thank you